I do like what can you do with some silver spray paint and queen as a title for this episode. Yeah, there you go. What you can do is bring a lot of joy. Okay. All right. For a while there, reality became so problematic that this podcast seemed entirely unnecessary. Terrible people from the 1980s are stalking the halls of power today for reasons too depressing to contemplate. It can seem like we haven't made much progress against racism, sexism, homophobia, conspiracy theories, or runaway capitalism. But then a few things happened to brighten my perspective. There are the midterm elections, of course. And Bohemian Rhapsody came out. It's not the perfect movie, but it has helped millions of people fall in love with Freddie Mercury all over again. Today, on Surprisingly Problematic, we're hitting reset with the 1980 Dino De Laurentiis production, Flash Gordon. More about that to come. Our special guest is my good friend, David McCreeth, and we are talking synths, satin, spaceships, and celebrating the awesome majesty of Queen. So we already recorded this episode. Yep. But then what happened to me personally, well, and happened to all of us in America, is that the Kavanaugh hearings happened. Yep. And that just put me off doing this podcast. Yep. I mean, how 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 much more problematic can you get than our our newest Supreme Court justice? Yeah, especially because he's such a such a frat dude, and he seemed to be all of the worst characteristics of um, oh God, what's his name? Not Andrew McCarthy, the other one. <laughs> I, I don't know their names. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. That guy. James Spader. Okay, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, fortunately, I I was doing some some work in New York City and I was occupied at a a client conference thing all day and I could not watch the hearings. But yeah. Brett Kavanaugh was like the worst James Spader character. It was terrible. I mean, uh, I okay, I know this is a podcast about movies. But no, it's, it's about the surprisingly problematic 80s that we're now still wrestling with because yeah, some, Trump, some <laughs> as predicted by Back to the Future, became oh, our president. God. Somehow, somehow the 80s have come back and they're even worse. Oh, my God. They're Honest even like God. worse and real. Yeah, I'm like, oh, was Reagan so bad? Reagan, Reagan seemed to, Reagan did foreign policy. I remember that. And I'm like, I can't be reconstructing Reagan in my mind. Yeah. So when I, I, you know, I lived in, I lived in Germany for a year of high school while Reagan was president. And it was a similar thing, right? I, the, the Germans that I was hanging out with would tease me relentlessly about Reagan being president. And I found myself on one occasion, I actually got my back up so bad that I started defending Reagan to these Germans. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I realized how stupid I was being and stopped, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing with Trump and all of his fucking idiots, Betsy DeVos and now Kavanaugh. And it's just, God, they're just the worst of the worst. I just cannot believe it. Yeah, they really are. It's, it's like a cast. It really is like a cast of 80s movie villains. Because they're not even like super villains. Because they're so boring and stupid. And they're just horrible, dumb, rich people. Right? So they really are like villains from 80s movies. Yes. Yes, they are. And uh, yeah, so I was, I was in Germany for the... 2016 election uh, so i have sort of ruined berlin for me so i have to go back berlin's a great city and I, I was up all night drinking terrible german red wine uh with germans one of whom was like weeping it was all very strange uh, and then i went to a protest 
at the Brandenburg Gate where the Germans were protesting American fascism. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't need to watch Man in the High Tower. It was it was that weird. Yeah. So so Kavanaugh that whole that whole hearing like I had a couple episodes of, of the podcast in the can ready to edit. That hearing happened. I just couldn't even think about it for a while about going back. So I'm like, why even bother? It's not ironic. It's not funny. And then the the next kind of media event that happened. Uh, so Bohemian Rhapsody came out. Yes, thank God. Thank God. So Bohemian Rhapsody came out. The uh, the Queen Rock biopic, which is now the top grossing, I think, biopic of all time or something. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's quite popular. People are seeing it. It took us a few days to actually get into the theater to see it because it kept being sold out. And I found out that people were seeing it again and again and again. Oh. And like young people who weren't even alive at the time because of the feelings and the emotions. And then I thought, okay, I went to see it. I had feelings and emotions. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, I'm ready to go back to it. And, uh, and so let's talk about Flash Gordon because I really feel like, like having seen that movie and thinking about it, like Flash Gordon is a great place to kind of restart the podcast because it's really less an 80s movie than the finale of the 70s. It is the finale of the 70s. And I think, yes, I agree. And, and I also, I think doing it with the lens of people having seen Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. is really good because another interesting note, maybe interesting, let's say relevant, not interesting, about, <laughs> my, about my high school years is that until I discovered punk rock, Queen was it for me. I was like in the movie wow. when when Freddie Mercury says we're the rock and roll for the weirdos and the misfits sitting in the back of the room. I was like, "Fuck yes, that's me!" Wow. Yeah, Queen Queen was it. They were the band from the time that I from like the time that I got into middle school, basically like sixth grade through I guess probably tenth grade. Queen was all I listened to. The whole Flash Gordon thing was very weird because it was happening at a time when I was starting to discover punk rock and I loved Star Wars. And then this Flash Gordon thing came. I was like, what? What? <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah. Yeah. So so what did you think about Bohemian Rhapsody? So Bohemian Rhapsody is a very good movie about a rock band. It's one of those ones where like when you've read the book you're, you, all you can think about is what they've left out. Mm-hmm. I had I had several of those moments. However, mm. I think that Raimi did a great job of portraying Freddie. Mm-hmm. I think that they did a decent job of compressing the story. I, I told you, I think over text, my one my one super musical beef with it was that they chose a song from the album Jazz, which came out in. 79 or something to portray their first tour of the US in 1974 and that was jarring for somebody who knows their catalog like that. The other thing, what was that guy's name? The guy that played Brian May, Gwilin. The guy that plays Brian May is uncanny. It's just Yeah. It's just bizarre, especially if you go go look him up later and look at a picture of him. He looks nothing like Brian May. He looked exactly like him while he was playing guitar. It was it was crazy. So lots of lots of mixed feelings about things that they left out. Maybe they should have handled the AIDS stuff a little. They should have gone into that a little bit more. But I can also kind of understand why the band wouldn't want to do that. Like how how would you do that? There were, I can think of a couple of different directions to take the movie, and it would be interesting to see what Sasha Baron Cohen would have done with a darker version of it. Mm-hmm. But I liked it. And I totally got choked up and teary-eyed during the, during the Live Aid sequence at the end. It was just, like, it was ridiculous. I was crying in a movie of a band lip-syncing to a Queen song. <laughs> <laughs> but... So was I, and I think so was everyone else in the theater. Mama, 
that was, I guess that was the part of the movie they, they shot first. So everybody was fresh and Brian Singer hadn't been, the director hadn't been fired yet and, and all of that. <laughs> yeah. So, so you and I were both alive for Live Aid for that, for the concert, the actual concert. And yeah. all I remembered was Phil Collins flying. It was a big deal because he flew from the London a concert to the New York concert on the Concord oh, and performed at both. And so that was really the only thing I'd remembered about Live Aid. I didn't, I watched the whole thing and, you know, I don't, Queen has basically been, seemed like they've been around my entire life. And so I didn't remember the the performance and I went back and, and watched it this afternoon and yeah. uh, it's a little, it's all hard to handle. But that, yeah, that scene in the movie, because I think what they captured it was an amazing the way they shot it was it was so so just fantastic because what the movie did and I think why people are responding to it is even though it didn't get like into some of the nuances of Freddie Mercury's life and especially about it I think it would have been great to see more about because they're the way that they compose their music I mean they got into it a little bit yeah. Um, with their their ethos and their inventiveness and everything. But I think especially what they did in that scene is they gave you both the perspective of what it was like to be Freddie Mercury on stage in front of a crowd that massive. Mm-hmm. And then the camera swoops through the crowd and you see Freddie Mercury on stage from the perspective of the crowd. And I think it captured the, uh, the sort of the, the emotional landscape of arena rock and right and how queen was able to connect because that was that was something they they did go into about the way that queen thought about their audience and their fans like what you mentioned with like you know the the weirdos in the room or whatever but also when you've got like tens of thousands of people how they were able to connect in that relationship and how they they thought about including like, oh, the audience will be clapping their hands and stomping. And that's actually, they're performing a part of the song. Right. And we're having right, this experience yeah. together with them. That was really important. And it it also, it touched on, so getting back to a little bit of Queen nerddom, one of the things that Queen made a big point of saying on all of their records up until I think, or maybe maybe the game was where they stopped putting it on their, on their albums. All of their albums said no synths, like no synthesizers. <laughs> And, and the, point, the point was that not that they were anti-keyboard or anti-synthesizer. The point was that they were that they were achieving all of these crazy operatic sounds themselves with their instruments and their voices and multi-track tape. They were not reproducing things with synthesizers, which at the time, synthesizers in the early 70s were like auto-tune, right? Like mm-hmm. people were like, starting to turn up their noses, but there were also a cadre of people who were like, no, they're the best thing ever. So anyway, it was, it was just interesting to see them to, in the movie. You're right. It was great to see them talk about that craftsmanship and what they, why Queen worked the way they worked. Yeah. The, the other thing was, was capturing what it was like to be at a Queen concert. So I only had the opportunity to see Queen once, but I did. I saw them on, their, on the tour for the game in 1980. But it was it was that same, like the big overhead lights and Freddie in tight red leather pants, and it was it was the one that they showed from Madison Square Garden. It was basically mm-hmm. that same set. Oh wow! And it was amazing. We had, I mean, we were we were in high school in Fort Worth, Texas, and we had to drive over to Dallas to see the band. So of course we had shitty tickets. We were up in you know the third mm-hmm. balcony or whatever in some giant arena, but yeah. they still blew us away it was it was amazing and it was it was the last big arena concert that i ever saw so they yeah they did a really good job of of getting to the root of what it was like to be at a queen concert and how closely freddie was able to connect with giant fields of people 
Yeah. I mean, really as a, as a human being, just like a stunning, stunning human being. And like Brian May too. And I just think, imagine what it's like to be Brian May, where you're not only one of the best guitar players on the planet, but you're also an astrophysicist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, he didn't actually finish his degree until a couple of years ago. But, yeah, but then he was—he he taught, and he wrote <laughs> physics books, and yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. wow, so, and just the fact yeah. that they, yeah, one of the things that they uh, they kind of changed in the movie was, uh, you know, Freddie finds them in, in a club when they were Smile, was that their band name? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And he's like, hey, so you lost your singer? I'm going to audition for you. But in, in reality, they were all like roommates and knew each other and stuff. But still, like, how right. do you sort of end up like? you know, hey, let's hang out and and become this this phenomenon. And there's actually a so so voice researchers like Czech and Swedish researchers did a whole project in the last couple of years on Freddie Mercury's voice. And it's just like there is nobody else has a voice like his. Like his his vibrato was at a, a higher frequency than opera singers and he had like just weird sort of irregularities and he had those teeth and yep. Yeah, so science, science says that um, Freddie Mercury is the greatest uh, vocalist who's ever lived. Yep. So yeah, man, feelings, so many feelings. So many feelings. And it, I was, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I kept, I kept putting off going to see it, not because I still haven't seen the Mr. Rogers movie, because everybody that I've talked to has said, yeah, I just sobbed, basically, for like half of the movie. I just sobbed. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'd been I'd been putting off I'd been putting off Bohemian Rhapsody, one to sort of protect it was it was like dual but conflicting motivations. One I wanted to protect my teenage remembrance of Queen as this thing that was very important to me up to a point, but I also didn't want to be disappointed by the portrayal of that. But I also was scared that the portrayal would be too good and and I would like be really, really sad. And it was sort of between the two. I mean, they didn't they didn't tell me anything about Queen that I didn't know. Yeah. The the tears at the end honestly were sort of like both te- relief, joy, and sadness that, you know, we lost Freddie when we did. And anyway. All the feels. Yeah. And if you really, if you really want to twist the knife, you can, uh, you can do what I did and follow up watching the video of the Live Aid performance with watching uh, Freddie Mercury and Bowie on stage performing under pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I think, yes, yeah, so I think a lot of people are responding to it and really uh, younger people. So I think it's fantastic that, so the movie is great as a, a sort of, you know, an, an introduction to that period of music, like before everybody was just staring at their phones at concerts. Right. Uh, and so I think it uh, it's inspiring the youths. <laughs> yeah, it is. So where this ties back to Flash Gordon, I think is really interesting. And I was thinking about this, like I was thinking about the fact that we hadn't like completely finished recording the other version of this episode that we did and you hadn't edited it. But I was, uh, you know, the, the the point at which Brian is talking to the band about, I want to do something that gets the audience more involved. I want to do something that's different than we've done before. That's that's their last sort of canonical rock queen album, News of the World, is the mm-hmm. one that has We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions on it. And on the cover of that one, they all have long hair and platform shoes and bell bottoms and shit like that. And then the next album is jazz where things have started to like get weird and (laughs) it's around it's around that same time between jazz and the game that the flash gordon thing comes up and the flash gordon soundtrack is so weird and experimental Mm -hmm. and it and it fits the movie so well like the movie is just it's just bizarre yeah i mean like like you're right it is it is absolutely sort of the a combination of the last hurrah and the dying gasp of the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> it's like technicolor and the special effects are honestly shit, <laughs> but it's glorious. Flash. Ah, Remove the earth woman. Prepare her for our pleasure. Flash. Ah. Don't kill him yet, father. I want him. 
It, it is. And actually, um, I, I went back and I read uh, Ebert's review because I miss, I, I also, all the, all the departed people, I miss Roger Ebert too because he always reviewed every movie on its own terms. Like he didn't have some external standard for cinema. He's always like, what was, what was the brief? Like what were they setting out to do? And, and did they accomplish it on their own terms? And he liked Flash Gordon, which got, you know, kind of mixed reviews. And he said that, uh, that at a time when Star Wars and its spinoffs have inspired special effects men to bust a gut making their interplanetary adventures look real, Flash Gordon is cheerfully willing to look as phony as it is. And I don't mean that as a criticism. Yep. He said, it's fun to see it done with energy and love and without the pseudo-meaningful apparatus of the Force and Trekkie power. Yep. Oh, Roger Ebert. It's true, though. It's true. I mean, I was one of those 14-year-olds completely enthralled with Star Wars. I saw it three times on the day that it came out. Mm -hmm. I was so excited that Flash Gordon was going to be soundtracked by Queen that I couldn't wait to go see it. And I just sat in the theater like, what am I watching? <laughs> Because I was, what? you know, I was all, I was all ready for gritty, like uh, <laughs> Battlestar Galactica had come out by then, and where's, where's my realism? But okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, I so I loved Flash Gordon so much. I saw it. Yeah, I had also I'd seen I saw Star Wars the theater, and I then I got the bed sheets and the action figures and and all of that. So then I went to see Flash Gordon, and I loved Flash Gordon so much that I went back and saw it for, I think the next time I went to go see it, I sat through it like twice. So I, I saw it about four times the first week it came out. So I'm like, this is amazing. And yeah, uh, yeah so it's always, um, you know, despite being uh, kind of problematic, we can get into that. It's always a film I've had a, a lot of love for. And I think mm -hmm. something that was very similar between Flash Gordon and Bohemian Rhapsody is that, both projects went through a lot of personnel before uh, getting the, the final team that, that brought the brought the project home and, and made, the, yeah. made the movie and released it. Dino De Laurentiis had the, the rights to it. George Lucas had gone to him before Star Wars and said, hey, maybe I'll make a, like a Flash Gordon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love, I love that detail that Star Wars only exists because Dino De Laurentiis wouldn't let George Lucas make a Flash Gordon movie. So instead, we got Star Wars and we got Flash Gordon. And the rest is the 80s. <laughs> the rest is the 80s. I know. Yeah, so, so then Dino's like, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to get this whole thing together. And first he was working with the guy who directed the man who fell to earth. Speaking of David Bowie and speaking of a really fantastic movie and a really, really good book, actually. Oh, really? Um, I have not read the book. Oh, the book's good. The book's good. It's basically about, um, oh gosh, I forget the author's name, but it's about him getting out of Kansas or something. That's really what it's about. So he hired uh, Nicholas Rugg or something, however you pronounce his name. And he went away for a year and sat with all the comics and, you know, hired somebody to do all these drawings. And it was going to be all like dark and metaphysical. And Dino was, came back and met with him and looked at the stuff and was like, mm, no, I, I have my visions sat near. <laughs> um, uh, side note, Nicholas Reg just died. Really? Like just yeah. now? No, not like a couple of days ago. Oh, whoa. Yeah. 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 Recently, recently passed away. So much satin. So much satin. So much satin. Those it are Italian costume people. Then he, he found his cast. So first he wanted Kurt Russell, but Kurt Russell saw the part and said, oh, I'm a real actor. <laughs> I, I, I have to go be Snake Plissken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Cinema. Cinema. Yeah, very important, serious work. Schwarzenegger was up for the part, but his accent was too thick and that was some, somehow a deal breaker because because out of the whole cast like flash is the all-american football player that i think right. that would have just taken it to the next level having schwarzenegger there yeah schwarzenegger as the all-american yeah. football player sure yeah sure yeah sure it wouldn't have been any okay. weirder yeah melody anderson had done a lot of tv work and so she got to be a uh, dale dale arden who is a travel mm -hmm. agent i finally looked up her career so then sam jones the blonde guy, the Rocky Horror looking guy, uh, yeah. <laughs> got the part 
based on two things, apparently. One, a dating game appearance. That was his, <laughs> that was his screen test or something. He was on the dating game. And uh, and he had a Playgirl centerfold. <laughs> I looked up the Playgirl centerfold. Don't do it. Just I can't unsee that. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I can't unsee that. He's just like he's standing there with his wang out, and that got him cast in Flash Gordon. So that that tells you yeah. something about what Dino De Laurentiis was was looking at, and he was actually talking to uh, to Fellini about directing it at one point. God. Yeah. God. Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it would have been a totally different movie. I'm just I'm just thinking about I'm just thinking about the 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 world in which things have basically been planned and shot, sets have been built and the director leaves and they bring in Fellini and he <laughs> Fellini and the Schwarzenegger. That's the <laughs> God, what could have been? What, what could have been? What could have been? It would have been oilier. Well, I just the 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 casting that I totally forgot about between seeing it in 1980 and watching it again for the first time in, I don't know, two decades was Topol mm-hmm. as, as the, the Dr. physicist, Zarkov. Dr. Zarkov. Yeah. Dr. Um, Zarkov. Topol actually plays a role in one of my favorite weird drug moments <laughs> where some, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> some friends and I, took, uh, I think it was, it must've been mushrooms. We had some mushrooms and we went to see Fiddler on the Roof at, at, at UT. Like they were showing it on campus somewhere and we went to see Fiddler on the Roof. And at one point on this Cinemax, well, it wasn't Cinemax cause it was a school auditorium, but on this giant movie screen, the, the camera zooms in on Topol's blue eyes and I think they're blue, whatever. It zooms in on his eyes they were and blue all for you, you can see all yeah, all you can see on the screen is these two giant eyes, and I just started giggling uncontrollably until they finally asked us to leave. <laughs> wow! So of I was super the, happy to see football again. <laughs> of all the movies to see on drugs, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. saw Yellow yeah. Submarine on acid, but that's like. <laughs> As it was meant to be seen. Sure. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So Topol, he has no singing or, or dancing in this movie. He's the disgraced yeah. NASA scientist who knows what's going on. And then, of course, yeah. Max von Sydow as um, yeah. as Ming the Merciless, and he uh, yeah he seemed to be having the best time out of. Totally. Totally. Like I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better person, honestly. Yeah. I mean. He anyway, didn't think yeah. he was slumming. He was <laughs> No, he's like he totally gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the Queen was brought in. So then we bring it we bring it up to Queen. The director was I think every director of a of a sci-fi picture at this time for some reason wanted to work with Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had wanted Mike Hodges who was brought in to direct. He wanted Pink Floyd for whatever reason he's like okay maybe queen and of course dino de laurentis he's like oh who who are the queens that's that his famous yeah, line no. and they showed brian may at like a 20 minute clip and he was like cool if we can have total creative control we're in and and so queen queen did the soundtrack and they got to do whatever they want and so they brought like a lot of dialogue into the their record and the record was really well received and there was a hit it was a hit record so apart from the movie and the mixed reviews the movie got uh, the record was a, a total success yeah and and i mean the the movie got mixed reviews but it it didn't lose money it nope. made money it did make it did make money not star yep. wars money nope it made, but it made money and and the and queen queen fans or i i don't know i i shouldn't speak for all queen fans but the record is well regarded by both fans of queen and fans of just weird music the movie itself i was honestly surprised at how unproblematic it is yeah there's some i mean there's obvious things that you expect to see from a movie in this made in the late 70s based on characters from the 20s or whatever mm-hmm. ming the merciless the original ming the merciless in the comic strip was obviously an embodiment of the yellow peril so they sort of sidestepped that yeah I, and, yeah 
there still was a little like he still I kept I've been trying to find so his his beard style is known as the Fu Manchu. Yes. Apparently there's no less racist name for that style of facial hair. <laughs> I looked for it even like I looked at the national beard and mustache competitions and I guess that's the official terminology for it. <laughs> and he still yeah, I think they they really just tried to make him look like a Based tyrant at the time when I was a kid, I was totally unaware of you know the yellow peril propaganda kind of thing that like the original Flash Gordon comics played off of. And he's got, I mean, he does have some of the attributes like he he has this he's he's a cruel tyrant. He lives in luxury. He like lusts after Earth women. So there, so there's like there's some still it harkens back to those stereotypes because right so i think i tried to get away from that and he he was just wearing a cool fancy beaded robe thing right because the like the decorations in in ming's palace were not particularly asian they were sort of deco right like it was it was a further remove from the from the the western culture fascination with asian stuff in the early 20s so yeah so i feel city of oz studio 54 yeah (laughs) and then and then the other the other problematic stuff that i was holding my breath for is like god what's going to happen with the women (laughs) but 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 dale arden kicked some ass like yeah they show her they show her tumbling in <laughs> in a in a skimpy dress, admittedly, but they show her like fighting and killing guards and shit with with guns and and taking care of herself. Yeah, um, and there was way start- less sexual assault and gratuitous lingerie than in other high movies that took place in high schools in the eighties. So. Yeah, it it wasn't too bad like that. So so yeah, so the movie like the movie opens up and they're getting on a tiny plane. Well, first it shows that it has this ama- the amazing queen intro. And I read that Freddie Mercury actually designed cuz he was a graphic design student. They show that in the movie uh in uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody. He designed the Flash logo. Really? That's what I read. I'll have to see if I can find another corroborating source, but yeah. He was really into it. I had not heard that. Oh, cool. Yeah, because he'd wear, like, in concert, he had a shirt that said Flash on it. He'd wear that. Um, yeah. And so when I was I was rewatching the movie recently, and the whole beginning where Ming's like, Clytus, I'm bored. Oh, I'll play with the planet Earth and cause, like, terrible weather to happen to it. That felt really real to me. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. (laughs) (laughs) Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this uh, earth? Later. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, in- yeah. Oh, you, you just reminded me of another cultural tie in. So many. The Kleptones did uh, an album a long time ago, like early 2000s, uh, called A Night at the Hip Hopera, which, oh, yeah. which was a mashup of Queen songs. Uh, it, was mostly, it was mostly Queen songs, um, not, not all from Night at the Opera. It's a, it's a bunch of them. But the whole thing opens with Mongo saying, or Ming saying, Clytus, I'm bored. <laughs> It's so good. Anyway, it is. It's one of. It's like one of the best mashup things that I've ever heard. This digital recording is brought to you courtesy of EMI Records, the world's greatest music company. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today?
really captures both Queen and oh, I think most of the samples, most of the other samples come from Wu Tang. Mm -hmm. but, but I'm not sure. I'm sure somebody has broken it all down. Yeah, the, that anyway. um, that line reading is also featured in the Orb. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the Orb's Adventures Beyond the Underworld at the beginning of uh, Earth parentheses Gaia. Life is like what plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body of the escape system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. You can really judge a movie by how quotable it is, and there are yes. several, uh, several really fantastic quotes. Um, but Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything yeah. can you offer me? Is just a great opening, <laughs> a great opening before the the climate change courtesy Mongo happens. And there's even there's a shot when they look when they're on, you know, Flash and Dale are on the airplane and the hot hail's coming down and the plane starts shaking and Dale's scared. And then they look out the window and the dark cloud is going across the sun. And that's really been the state yep. of, of the Bay area over the past, uh, past couple of weeks. And there's horrible, horrible fires. And I'm like, wow, yeah, this really, uh, maybe, maybe it's time for a remake so we can all process our terror at climate change. Um, yeah. So then, uh, <laughs> then the plane crashes. So, plane crashes into the weird greenhouse laboratory of Dr. Zarkov. <laughs> sure. Where he grows his mushrooms. <laughs> ah, of yes. course. Makes perfect sense. There's one of the things about this movie, which is, you know, like where they're just expecting, expecting you to suspend disbelief. Just come on, you're on this ride. Let's go. Is after Dr. Zarkov forces, basically kidnaps Dale and Flash and launches them into space in a rocket. <laughs> By the time they get to Mongo, they're friends. Sure. What else are they going to do? They're on a rocket. Because he was, because yeah. Zarkov was threatening his lab assistant, like before Dale and Flash showed up with a gun to say, get in, we're going right. to ride my rocket to Mongo and, and confront what's going on. And then the lab assistant gets away in the crash, but then they're, hey, fresh meat. <laughs> Two non-scientist so, people. So a little bit, a little, a little bit of problematic stuff there. Kidnapping, 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 people. bad. Yeah, don't spoil. Um, a little, a little like, light. It, it was very light kidnapping, actually, very light. They tumbled into the rocket. The rocket took off, and it was, you know, it's kind of nice that there was just no explanation. It's like I'm a disgraced NASA scientist. I built a wacky little rocket. I know where the bad weather is coming from. Hey, friends, let's go on a ride to this other planet and confront the enemy. <laughs> sure, sure. No ponderous yeah. exposition, yeah. no voiceover. We're just tumbling into the rocket and going. Yep. And so they end up on Mongo. They are taken prisoner. There's the weird scene where Flash defeats the guards by playing football yeah. at them. Yeah. And that was apparently improvised. Yeah. So they, they put this movie together like a well-resourced high school play where they just made props out of glitter and glue and silver spray paint. And they had, so they had all the, the various regional groups of Mongo citizens bringing their tributes to Ming. And one group had little sculptures that looked like footballs. And so the actors were inspired to say, hey, Flash is a football player. Why? And, and Dale's an all-American cheerleader-looking kind of person. So she'll cheer. Flash will throw a pass and beam these alien dudes with a football-shaped object. Go, Flash, for Yeah. 
but then they are ultimately, sadly, defeated. Uh, they take them all prisoner. Uh, Dr. Zarkov is sent off for uh, brain erasing. Uh, Flash is sent off to be executed. And, of course, uh, Dale uh, is to be groomed for uh, uh, Ming's pleasure or some equally squicky phrase. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Ming's Ming's uh, lovely evil daughter Aura, Princess Aura, Princess Aura, decides that she wants Flash for herself, so she bribes the doctor to revive him after he's been gassed. Yeah. After he's been executed, and she takes him to the planet of Timothy Dalton, her other boyfriend. Yeah, you get the uh, Robin Hood, Timothy Dalton. You get the sense that maybe the dating pool on Mongo is rather small. Or maybe just Ming's killed all of the eligible people that like, oh, fresh people have arrived from another planet. Everybody's interested in them. They're unusually (laughs) hot earthlings. Yeah. So she, so Ara takes, takes her to, uh, to the forest planet of uh, Prince Baron, future uh, James Bond, Timothy Dalton to their woody planet to hide him. And he has to engage in some sort of test of manliness by sticking his hand in a stump. Where there's a where there's a deadly animal that, that could yes, kill the, him. The scorpion looking in a in a slow and slow and agonizing yes, death. The wood beast. Just for reasons. For reasons. For reasons. The beast lies somewhere in the stump. Choose a passage. No way. Coward. Let's do it. And uh, yeah, meanwhile, God, it gets, it's so it, complicated. It's it's weirdly it's a it's a weirdly complicated movie. I think when you base a movie on something that was written as a serial, you have. Mm-hmm to deal with the episodic nature of peril because of course it's just cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger and i think uh i think when they translated it to the screen it's hard to get away from that like oh everybody's got to have a cliffhanger like flash is is going to be executed and resuscitated right away and then he's going to go to this other planet and you know and it's going to skip back and forth among all of these people with sort of unclear agendas so uh ara but when ara was taking flash to uh to arborea that's right she taught flash to communicate telepathically and so that's how he contacts dale where she's locked in the as a bedchamber prisoner and then there's another sort of awkward awesomely kind of 70s scene where flash is communicating telepathically with Dale while Ara is making out with him. I'm with you, Dale. Just concentrate hard and think to me. It's telepathy. Over. Can this be real? I saw you executed. I was saved. I'm still alive. Oh, thank God. Where are you? In a rocket, racing to Arborea to get help. Are you okay? Over. I'm locked in Ming's bedroom. Fake him out. Oh. Girls know how, Dale. It's been done to me. Take him out till I get back. Over. Yeah, it's too dangerous for you here. You can't come back. Stay where you stay. Oh my God, this girl's really turning me on. I, I didn't quite get that. Think it again. Forget I thought it. It wasn't about you. Over. What? Right. Hang up. Yeah. That was. Where? That was. <laughs> that was definitely. A very seventies moment. Oh God. Um, so, so skipping ahead over some of the confusion. Aura, <laughs> Aura, and and getting up to one of the other potentially problematic scenes, which I was surprised turned out to be less problematic than I remembered. Aura gets back to the palace, like she's left Flash in the hands of Prince Baron, and there's all like. There's like a bunch of strutting testosterone bullshit that happens between them. Blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. Wood beast. Um, Test of strength. Nobody dies. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Dale has been given a a better satinier headdressy kind of you're going to be the bride of Ming person. Uh, 
a slave girl comes in, brings her some beverages. Right. And then the next time that we see Princess Aura, she is strapped down on a table being whipped. Yeah. <laughs> Your lover, Barin, is harboring Gordon in a boria, is he not? No. This lying is such a waste of time. You left with a pilot and returned alone. Wasn't he Gordon in disguise? No! Who do you imagine you're protecting? The Imperial surgeon who revived Gordon in his tomb? Another lover of yours! Your jealousy of me has made you mad! Seize the Imperial surgeon on suspicion of treason. You're mad! Prepare for torture! Confess, and we won't hurt you anymore. We don't like doing this at all. Never! She's being whipped by the woman that works with Clytus, who's general something that I can't remember. But they they know that she that she snuck Gordon off of the planet, and she won't tell them the truth. And they're trying to beat it out of her. And Clytus says, "Get me boar worms." No, not the boar worms. Right, and so Aura freaks out and says, "No, I'm the princess. You'll never." You, my father will kill you if you hurt me. And Clytus like hits a button and reveals that that Ming, Aura's father, has been standing mm-hmm. behind a mirror the entire time watching yeah. this. And you can see Aura's heart break. Bring me the boar worms. No, not the boar worms. I'm a princess of the blood, Clytus. My father will have your head for this. I swear, he'll execute your whole perverted secret police force. I demand to see him. With pleasure. Father. The traitor is close to confession, your majesty. Should we stop the torture? No. Father! Damn you, father! Yeah. Yeah, that's some some unfortunate parenting there. Uh, yeah, so yeah, right. General Kala is the one uh, whipping her all in her like shiny black dominatrix kind of outfit. And it's it's worth at this moment recalling that a previous Dino De Laurentiis production was Barbarella. Oh, right. Which also had um, light s m wacky space sex and a winged dude so definitely <laughs> some echoes right. of barbarella in a in flash right so aura is getting whipped and discovering that her dad is okay with that because she's a traitor at the same time dale is figuring out how to escape yes she escapes because an, an, another sexy servant girl brings her some absinthe or something that says it will make her nights with ming less disgusting or something it's a yes, space, roofie. space roofies and dale's like oh why don't you have some oh but we servant girls never get to have this and so dale gets the servant girl drunk switches outfits with her from one sexy prisoner outfit into a different sexy prisoner outfit. Sure. I, I couldn't yes. really tell the difference there. And then and then does the classic sci-fi escape from the guards by hiding around the corner moo. <laughs> so so there was there was a lot more action in this part of the movie, like that I just totally forgot about. But we'll skip ahead again because I want to get to the pillow fight. Get to the yeah, well, we'll call, <laughs> cut Cut to the pillow fight. So Dale has escaped and then been recaptured and surrendered to Ming to save Flash's life. And Aura has been punished and she's going to be banished to the frozen planet for a year. The ice moon Phrygia. And for some reason, they end up thrown together in the same bedchamber. Who knows why? But they're basically in the harem, right? And they get in a pillow fight. And what I remember, all I remembered from seeing it when I was a teenager was that there was a pillow fight between these two main female <laughs> yes, that, characters. That would be the part that would impress the teenage mind. <laughs> yes. And I thought for sure that it was that that's all it was going to be was just a stupid pillow fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Don't touch me. Oh, you! Don't! Oh, I'm a prisoner, too! You damn mongo person! You couldn't tell the truth to save your life! Day is stop! I'm going to be exiled in the morning! Liar! But you pointed out correctly that that is where they actually bond. Once they stop pillow fighting, Aura says, my heart is broken. How could I cry if I hadn't changed? Blah, blah, blah. And Dale's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, because she's got that heart of gold. She's the travel agent with the heart right. of gold. Yeah, and she's right. yeah, she's understandably, when she sees Ara, she's understandably very angry at Ara. And so attacks Ara with the only weapon to hand, which is pillow. Yes. And then she sees the crying. Pillows. And then they're like, oh, it's really like, yeah, your dad's not a cool dude. Let's uh, let's work together. Yeah. Is this another trick, Aura? Is this a trick? Could tears come from my eyes if my heart hadn't changed? I've been such a spoiled fool. I never knew what my father was until he let Clytus put the boar worms on me. I believe you, Aura. But I don't trust you. You have Ming's blood in your veins. You'll be cozying up with him again in the morning. Not if you give him this. It's deadly poison. My father always drinks a power potion before he makes love. Drop this into his glass tonight. I can, Aura. I gave your father my word of honor. What word? To try and be a good wife. If he'd spare Zarkov and Baron. He vowed he would. My father has never kept a vow in his life. I can't help that. Keeping our word is one of the things that make us better than you. And then they... And they escape somehow. Wait. Do they escape? I just watched it. <laughs> it's very, <Dang> it. <laughs> it's very confusing. No, they don't. Do they escape? Maybe they escape. Who knows? Pillow fight. But then Flash, uh, Flash finds a rocket cycle. Oh, that that was part of what we skipped yes. over. So Flash and Baron are taken to Sky City which is where the Hawkmen live. And yes. Flash is forced to fight Baron in a death match. Again, a little fetishy. There's spikes and there's whips, spikes and mm -hmm. whips. And there's a rotating rotating platform over nothingness or something. And then Baron slips off the tilted platform. And because Flash is a good guy, Flash saves him. Ming is impressed with Flash. And he says, you know, you're cool. Um, I will I will give you the planet Earth. Like you can rule over Earth if you're loyal to me. And then Flash is like, no, I'm I'm not gonna rule over Earth. And then Ming says, okay, we're just gonna destroy uh, the Hawkmen's world. And that's when Flash finds a rocket cycle and right. escapes before the destruction of Sky City. <laughs> rocket cycle, sure, through space. Because again, the the physics of all of this are somewhat questionable. Like, is Sky City a planet? Is our, our Borean Phrygia? Are these just all, I guess, moons of Mongo? Uh, but there's the very famous, like, I'm yeah. flying blind on a rocket cycle line. Uh, <laughs> something, something <laughs> physics. But well, and, and, the, and the Hawkmen, the Hawkmen can, can traverse the distance between these planets or moons just using their wings, whereas Clytus, who's flying in a rocket ship, is in a is in a bedchamber because the trip is so arduous or something. Or maybe he's just like snapping. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, no rules, no rules, only satin. So, so meanwhile, <laughs> Ming is going to marry Dale. He's caught, you know, got Dale right. and they're, they're going to be married. And in the wedding vows, the, the officiant asks like, will you uh, be married to her forever and, and not shoot her out in a space? And Ming's like, nope, can't do that. Like if I get bored, I get to shoot her out in a space. Do you, Ming the Merciless, ruler of the universe, 
take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour? Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. <laughs> Ming's got a real bore. I think this, this, the theme of this movie is really about the, the boredom of just having too much money and power. Like you just, you yeah. run out of stuff to do. You run out of people to date. You end up just raining hot hail on the planet and uh, killing a bunch of people for fun. <laughs> so Ming is basically Jeff Bezos. Yeah, yeah. Who's listening to this right now. So, uh, so please, Jeff Bezos, stop <laughs> raining hot hail on California. Then Flash is flying the rocket ship into the wedding hall. And uh, he impales Ming. Yeah, yeah. Flash impales Ming from behind with his rocket ship. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's, it's because Baron was able to deactivate the lightning field from Sector Alpha. Deactivate the lightning field. That was another thing that was happening in all the things that are happening. And uh, and so so then Ming's been impaled by the rocket nose. He sort of slides off of it. Flash uh, is magnanimous and offers to spare his life if he will stop attacking Earth. The game's lost, Ming. Stop your attack on Earth, and I'll spare your life. You pitiful fool. My life is not for any Earthling to give or take. Of course, Ming. Ming's gonna Ming, so he refuses. Tries to use his power yep. ring on Flash, because power rings are very important. There's probably a, a whole 1930s culture of power rings and comic books that maybe we, we could explore further with more knowledge, but uh, but Ming's yeah. power fails and nothing happens, but then he aims the ring at himself and is vaporized seconds before the countdown. It also has a countdown to destruction. There was apparently a countdown to mm -hmm. destroy Earth that was also happening in the background of all of this. It reaches zero. It does not reach zero. Ming disappears and the counter is stopped, saving Earth. And hooray, hooray. victory is celebrated. Baron and Ara become the new leaders. Baron names Voltan the general or something. And uh, <laughs> and then Flash, Dale, and Zarkov are, are on Mongo, but they don't know how they're going to get back. Dale says, oh, I'm, I'm a right, New York because... City girl gotta get back somehow. somehow somehow we'll get back but they don't know they, they don't know how are they gonna get back and then the very last thing some hand clad in black satin <laughs> goes out and picks up ming's power ring who some that somehow nobody else had picked up everybody just kind of forgot about the power ring right yeah we saw how that worked out in lord yeah. of the rings sure. anyway yeah i guess presumably they they thought maybe they would make more of it. they did or maybe it was true. They did. So there was a laugh. The, the hand it? picks up the ring, evil laugh, and it, right. the credits say the right. end, and then there's a little sound effect and a question mark, and the movie's over. And then everybody sits and waits to watch it again because it's so awesome. It, this was originally <laughs> supposed to be the first of three movies, but because of all the issues and because of the fact that it was sort of a flop, uh, they decided not to make any more, and Sam Jones actually sued Dino De Laurentiis. For breach of contract. Oh, wow. And lost. And lost. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. And then the well. movie went down in um, uh, cult film history. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean... Let's let's you know let's let's hear it for for another movie that was surprisingly not problematic despite having a few problems. Yeah, could have been, could have been way worse. There were so many opportunities. So many opportunities. For it to be yeah. Worse. Because I think it had that 70s, we're all here to have a good time. And the actors were playing it really straight. And I think that's why it ended up being uh, delightfully campy. Is, is the cast was, with the exception of Sam Jones, Playgirl model, 
Um, the cast were all really good actors who really committed to their yeah. roles. Very, very professional job. And everything else around them was uh, super goofy. Yep. <sighs> Thus saving another chapter of my weird obsession with Queen as a youth from being tarnished. Like, it's okay, it's okay for me to remember Flash Gordon yeah. fondly. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I, th- I think if you consider the movie just a long-form Queen music video, then mm-hmm. uh, then it's, it, you know, it, does, it works out works out quite well. Let's see. In terms of rewatchability, we're we're now supposed to give it some sort of numerical score. Ah, I would say, well, it, I think it cost me ten bucks to buy it from iTunes. I would say that if if you enjoyed it as a kid, it's worth watching again. If you like Queen and you like Bohemian Rhapsody, it's definitely worth watching again. But I think it's probably one of those ones where you get a bunch of friends over one night and like make popcorn and like have a party while you're watching Flash Gordon because it's not like it's something that's going to command your like demand your attention to keep track of it. Yeah. So I I don't what what scale do you use for the out of a hundred. Out of yeah. 100? Uh, I, I would give it a solid 85 yeah. or 90. Under, understanding that what you're watching is a campy mm-hmm. 70s sci-fi reaction to Star Wars. Yeah, I'll give it a solid 100. Okay. I really will. All right. Because this was... Because it's just... I think in the same way that when we you know watched Bohemian Rhapsody, which was a flawed mm-hmm. film, but connected with uh, all of those emotions and really delivered something that... I think we're missing in a lot of just like music and culture right now, which is that, that immediacy and those large emotions and that complete yeah. lack of irony. Cause there, cause you know, Freddie Mercury totally committed, like those songs were goofy, right? Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody, this, the title song is just, he's like, I'm going to make an opera. I'm going to make a rock opera. Yeah that doesn't even have a story, right? It's just, I'm just going to write this song. I'm going to make an album called Night at the Opera. We're just going to cross genres. We're going to try stuff and we're not going to yep. try to be cool, right? There was no hipster about it. There's no hipster <laughs> arena rock. It's just you get 20,000 people together, all singing the same song, all just excited to be having this not too closely examined experience because it's right. fun. Stomping their feet and clapping Stomping their hands. and clapping and just having a great time and and with people who are just incredibly yeah. talented entertainers providing something like really wanting to give to the audience. And so I feel sort of the same way with Flash Gordon. <laughs> like there were some amazingly talented people, you know, uh, King, uh, King, what's his face? Voltan. Uh, the Hawk dude. Voltan, King Voltan. Brian Blessed is a Shakespearean actor. He was in most of Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare right. movies, right? He was just there, like with his great big white teeth, just like ha, and he owned ha, it. I'm a he hawk. Totally owned it. You know, he owned it. And so, yeah. So I think that going back and in, in looking at these examples of of that time when it's like, you know what, we're just gonna make something. It's gonna be a hot mess. <laughs> with a great soundtrack it's going to be satiny and make no sense and we're not going to try to explain things with the force or midi chondrians or some existential voiceover it's just we're just gonna do something that's just fun and satiny and and people need that you know (laughs) no especially in in dark times so yeah so i'll say like you know definitely it's fun to watch with friends but just to see like what you can do with some silver spray paint <laughs> and queen and some old comic books, you know, cause especially with the things like all the DC oh, movies God, you see yeah. now, they're so ponderous. And, and so I think, I think that's, that's really great. And I'll say that the moment, so the moment that really transitioned for me, cause the, you know, we also normally talk about like, Oh, what's the most eighties movie? Like what prefigured the eighties mm-hmm. in this? And it's really Dale Arden's outfit. Yeah. Like you could really see that, like everybody else is in like flash is in his like kind of tight gay flash <laughs> top 
uh, t-shirt thing he's wearing and his super tight jeans and uh, and everybody else is all like satiny and disco. But then there's like Dale Arden who's like, I'm a New York City career girl with my big permy hair and, and my lip power gloss. suit and my red blouse. Oh, shiny. And lip gloss, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, yes. she was ready. Very ready good insight into the 80s as they were wrapping up the 70s. Totally worth sitting down and watching, get some friends, and just have fun. Surprisingly unproblematic, and you don't yeah. have to worry about, oh, God, is there going to be a horrible sexist rape scene or something yeah. like that? Yeah, so we'll probably just segue from this right into Revenge of the Nerds or something. To <laughs> Thank you so much for, for revisiting uh, some, some satiny memories of Queen It was my there. pleasure. I've now watched that movie twice in two months, which is more than ever before. (laughs) This has been Surprisingly Problematic. Tune in next time for another awkward nostalgia fest.